Hello, Brian's and possibly not Brian's. This is all the Brian's, where a Brian interviews Brian. And this episode is brought to you by the wrestling program of the University of Missouri, where Brian Smith is the head coach. University of Missouri Wrestling. Tap Brian's expertise to not tap out. And this episode's Brian may be responsible for your last binge-watching session because his job is to develop shows at True TV. Let's let Brian explain. My name is Brian Terry, so two first names, two last names. It's all uh, led to a wonderful jumble mess of uh, roll calls and whatnot. But uh, yeah, no, I currently serve as the uh, vice president of original programming and development at True TV, uh, which translation is I pretty much am looking out for shows for the network, whether that's internally trying to develop them with the team we have, uh, but more often than not taking pitches from outside production companies, uh, comedians, all sorts of talent agents who have ideas, and then sort of just being the first layer of defense, you know, for the network to kind of, you know, okay, does this, does this match sort of what we're looking for as the types of shows we're making, and is this a kind of comedy that, uh, you know, that fits on our network, because, you know, comedy... You know, super subjective, and, and yeah. even if you look at us versus IFC and Comedy Central, we all kind of do different brands of comedy. Uh, so, so that's sort of you know primarily what my responsibility is to not only find shows that are funny, but funny in the way that our audience likes funny to be. Yeah, it's such an interesting job because your job is almost just kind of like how TV gets made, like ideas themselves get made, like from the very beginning. Yeah. And so I was trying to think of like the most well-known example in culture, and I was thinking maybe that scene in Seinfeld where they're pitching the show about, you know, nothing famously, which which is not actually what it was, to like a room full of people or whatever, but like you're kind of like one of, you're like one of those people there that's getting pitched the show about, <laughs> kind yeah, of about nothing. Uh, yeah, a little bit, <laughs> but but I think, I think that's a, actually a really great example to bring up because... At the end of the day, like what normally or what usually will work for TV and especially for what we do at True TV is yeah. it's talent driven. So yeah, it was a show about nothing in the way that stand up uh, Seinfeld stand up was sort of about nothing. It was yeah. just everyday yeah. observations, but because he has such a wonderful voice and then combined with Larry David, which you obviously see that continue on with Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like that, that POV, that point of view with, with talent is what you're looking for as an executive. So it's funny, you know, it's a show about nothing, but it's a show about nothing through Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David's POV, which makes it gold. Um, a more, you know, another example of someone is, you know, the late Anthony Bourdain. Another oh, yeah, yeah. wonderful example of that. You know how many people pitch, oh, I want to do my own Bourdain show where I travel the world, meet cool people, and hang out with them. And it's like, the amount of people that an audience wants to like go on that journey with is somewhere between one and two, and one of them is Anthony Bourdain, or was Anthony Bourdain, and so I think the Seinfeld analogy, <laughs> while, while you brought it up sort of as, as in a different direction, is actually very uh, a, a good example of what I'm doing, is you're just looking for really smart, creative, clever people who have a unique point of view on relatable subject. And in our case, hopefully, there's some laughs attached as well. So, what would be the next step then after like they pitched you that show? Like, if they were like, if they if they pitched you that show, let's say, not the real, the actual good version of what the show sure. that was made, but like that fictionalized version of just just kind of like uh, not really much substance to it, a show about nothing. Things for us either come through on paper, whether that's like a deck or just a one sheet that someone's typed out outlining the ideas, or comes with a reel. 
And listen, if you're going to sell a show about nothing, yeah. I better have a reel that demonstrates that Jerry Seinfeld <laughs> is so damn funny. So that way you kind of understand, like, I get it. He's talking about jello. He's talking about zippers. He's talking about metal coat hangers. It really isn't about anything. But man, his insight into these everyday sort of glossed over minutiae is gold. And so, you know, for a show like that, you'd better have... Uh, yeah, some, some tape, uh, you know, a clip or two of Jerry so people understand, like, okay, it's a show about nothing, but it's a show about displaying this guy's point of view, which is really, there is something to that. Okay, so what, hypothetically, let's say it was an unscripted show, because that seems to be yep. True TV does mostly more, uh, unscripted show, it seems like. So mm-hmm. let's say it was like, oh, Jerry and George are like, we want to just host an unscripted show about nothing. Then what would be the next step if it was unscripted? Yeah, sure. And so I think what you have to do then, if it's not fictionalized, then you've got to figure out the second part of, okay, if that's what the material is, like, what are you seeing? So if it's scripted, obviously you're acting out scenes and you very much get it. But what what we are sort of tasked with is, you know, if, if you get in, into anything that's unscripted, you've got to visually be captivating as well. And that's why, like, procedurals do well in television, where there's a process, a beginning, middle, and end, because then you can not, not you know, people hear procedural and they automatically think, like, court or justice or law enforcement or something. But even, like, a show like American Pickers is a procedural. They get a call, hey, we heard that so-and-so has this John Deere tractor that no one's seen in 800 years, so we have to go to the barn and find it. So then you see them follow, you follow them, they go to the barn, they dig through the barn, they have a couple other things pop up, oh cool, it's an old Coca-Cola sign, an old pinball machine, and then it finishes with, oh my god, there it is, the tractor, can we buy it? So there's a very clear, clearly defined beginning, middle, and end. And so then what we're tasked with is like, okay, what are you watching? What are you seeing in that? And so um, I think our best example at True, where that really comes to life, is a show like Adam Ruins Everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where if you watch Adam Ruins Everything, you could imagine, let's say Adam, you know, uh, recently he ruined standing desks, which is hilarious because everyone at True TV seems like is using a standing desk these days. Well, Adam ruined standing desks. And so... In a traditional like daily show style, what they would do is just go interview people and interview chiropractors and health professionals and, and kind of debunk the myth of, oh, standing desks are better for your health that way. Yeah. Um, and for us, that show wouldn't be enough. Just it'd be a lot of talking heads. It might get a little boring and, and you couldn't really guarantee the comedy. And so what Adam does is he creates a whole world sort of like in a fictitious way that then he tells those facts through. So he would build a whole office environment. And so right away you'd have these visual cues that, okay, this is funny because whatever, there's silly posters on the wall, the way people are acting at the office is a little silly. And so that's always the challenge is is the messages are usually pretty, it's pretty clear like, okay, yeah, that's a cool message. That's a cool idea to bring to television. But, but what are you seeing and how do you bring that to life so you're not just talking at people? Yeah. So that's often what we're tasked with and, and what we challenge our partners with. Yeah, that's super interesting because I, I kind of figured out figured for like unscripted, it's like, yeah, you kind of need to figure out, yeah, like that framework. But yeah, if it is just like two guys talking and it's like, then is it just a talk show? You yeah, know? <laughs> or a podcast, you know, you know? what I mean? And that's, yeah. and that's a really... And, and that's the other thing too is that as different... Whether it's podcast, whether it's you know shows online, whether it's something you're seeing on Facebook or YouTube or Netflix, like cable television 
is its own unique behavior. Like the way people interact with cable television is different than how you interact with YouTube, how you interact with Netflix, how you want to take on a podcast. Yeah. And and that's why it's interesting because obviously as, as YouTube is blown up, so many YouTube people are like, oh, I'll go have my television show now. <laughs> But like YouTube is such an intimate experience, and 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 you know you're usually like I'm just looking at you look at a computer screen now you're never more than two feet away from this so it's intimate, and so that's why if you see a YouTuber and they've got just their little you know on on uh, on computer uh, camera recording them it works because there's sort of an intimacy and you're close to them they're close to you, but once you kind of back up mm-hmm. and you're sitting on a couch. Like that gets really old really quickly, and so you know, cable cable is its own beast, and it's it's interesting because you know everyone, well for a while everyone wanted all YouTube stars wanted their own cable shows, and very few people made that transition well, and now you're seeing sort of a a different angle on that is like Netflix is trying to get into more like unscripted shows, but that's a really different behavior, like. You don't turn on Netflix usually at 11.30 to hear about what happened that day. You turn on Netflix at like 8 o'clock, you're like, hey, I'm going to watch three episodes of this, or I'm going to watch this movie. And so like day and date programming just works so much better on cable because it's all part of the way you behave with it. I've heard that makes a format being like repeatable is important. So like if if it was a show about nothing, it would be like, oh, you have to have a new type of nothing in each one basically or whatever um but like is there do you have any examples of a show that like ran into a problem of it not being repeatable enough that could kind of like illuminate what yeah i mean why that is like a critical element yeah i mean often often shows won't get past the pilot if that's recognized because it is again when people sit down and watch cable specifically they want to kind of have the format there and ingrained in their brain. Like, they don't want to think too much. Um, cable TV shows are very much like pop songs. And if you really, like, stripped away the bells and the whistles, you'd probably be shocked at how formulaic they all were. Because that is what the viewer expects. And, and you look at a show like Saturday Night Live, one of the longest-running shows that we've had, um, or that's been on, rather, uh, in, in comedy... And there is a reason why they start with a cold open every week, why they have a couple of sketches, then they have the weekend update, while the music guests are pretty much... Because as a viewer, you like that pattern, and they know, hey, listen, this sketch isn't for me, but I know if I wait four more minutes, I'll get update, and I like weekend update. That usually makes me laugh. Or I've tuned in, I want to check out and see what Kanye's performance is going to be like. I know where that will fall in this. Like, that's not... That's not... um, random or that isn't um you know there's there's a lot of reasoning behind why they stick to that and it's just because as a viewer you kind of want that formula you know what i mean and 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 if if you watch crime shows even in scripted it's it's the same like they all kind of follow a similar pattern just because you like that comfort like whether or not you want to admit it and whether you know most people are like oh i'm original i want to think people like like comfort especially in cable television so what point in the process like let's say in the still in this development process you move forward with some hypothetical show about nothing with you know jerry's unique point of view or whatever at what point do you share it like with like the head of the network sure so so usually how it happens is um i'll take a pitch um there'll usually be someone on my team i've got a couple of executive producers who work with me and a couple other junior producers and one of them is usually in the room when we take the pitch 
Um, and then the next thing is like I have a team meeting that's like a smaller team that doesn't involve like the two main decision makers at our network. Um, and at that stage, it's more about like poking the holes. It's, you know, very rarely are you getting a slam dunk. You know, it's usually 80% there. So it's, okay, how do I, one, acknowledge the other 20%? Because that's really important and something that I had to learn as I took on this network job is, you know, a lot of times when you're trying to sell something, you want to like blow past the, the flaws, right? Focus on the good. The issue is, as a development executive, you almost have to lead with the flaws because if you gloss them over, then your boss will be like, well, what about that? Do you think this is good? <laughs> like, and that almost like ruins your whole pitch is because if you ignore the fact that the show you know, doesn't have a good ending or the show kind of you know, is one note as far as the jokes are telling, if you don't acknowledge that, then your boss is automatically going to be like, God, how are they not seeing that? That makes me question their judgment, where it's better to be like, hey, listen, I understand that this house needs a new paint job, but like, it's got a great basement, kick-ass kitchen, and like, you know, a master bathroom that everyone would love. Let's go forward with it. So there's usually, there's usually a team meeting that we'll have where we'll kind of like try to poke some holes, and then if, and if I'm confident... Or if I can go back to the production company and say, hey, listen, here are three questions. How do you answer for these? Um, then you go forward and pitch it. And there's, there's, you know, usually about, for us, about six to ten people in the room. And, you know, yeah, we're all rooting for each other. But we all have to, we owe it to each other to be honest, you know, and, and not take it personally for them to be like, I think this is terrible, <laughs> which happens quite a bit. Yeah, I feel like everybody wants to have a good show and a good pitch and make something not die but right. like yeah so they're not like cheering actively cheering against ideas of no course. but we have we have standards and we yeah. have bars that have been set and also you know you do enough pilots you learn enough lessons be like oh god here's another yeah. trap like i see what the issue is here <laughs> and even though it's just a small issue this issue has killed us the last four times we've tried to power through this issue so let's not try to make that mistake this time so how many like uh you know, shows in the pre-production like phase. Are you developing like at once? Um, like, like how many irons in the fire do you have for like maybe one production slot? Yeah, it's um, it varies at times. I mean, I think you know, right now I oversee uh, two shows that are on the air, and then we have three others that I'm overseeing that are in various stages of development. Um, and so it kind of ebbs and flows. Obviously, the more shows you have in production, the less time you have to work in development. Um, but but right now, because my on the production side, it's been a little bit slower with with where shows are airing. I've had more time to focus on the development side. So I'm a little more familiar with like how scripted shows, like you know, have like a pilot and do all that. Is it is it the same for unscripted? I'm just not as familiar. For, yeah, for the most part. I mean, I think the one difference is. With big enough talent, they don't have to do pilots. And oh, so yeah. if, if someone big enough comes in and says, hey, here's my idea, um, you'll, go, you'll usually go straight to series. And, and the, the big difference is, I mean, scripted, scripted is a lot more expensive. So it's a, it's a, you know, to spend, let's say, for a scripted pilot, let's say you're, just to make the numbers easier, you're spending a million dollars. And then to order a series would be 24, right? So that's an investment of $24 million. Yeah. Whereas unscripted, <laughs> some of those shows can be as low as like $350,000. So to do that investment is a fraction. You know, it's literally a third of the cost. And so 
Um, if the talent is big enough, you can sometimes skip the, the pilot stage, but for the most part, everything that we do gets a pilot. Okay, so, and then once it's like in the pilot stage, it's kind of like, then it goes to, if it goes well, it goes to series, and then at that phase, like, your role is like more production, it's kind of like... Yeah, it's, so, so, for my job specifically, like, I'll usually stay with a show, an unscripted show anyway, I would stay with it for its first cycle, right? Yeah. And, and in that instance, you're just kind of like getting it off the ground, and, and you're not making it, the production company's making it. And that's something that we really stress at True is, you know, we let the production companies make the final decisions. We want to give them guidance. We want to let them know, hey, here's what works for us. But ultimately, like, our worst case scenario is for a show to get canceled or not go forward and then to have our partners come back. Well, if we would have gotten to make the show we wanted to make, none of this would happen. It's like, no, we'll let you live and die with your mistakes. We will give you the guidance. And ideally, you hope to uh, reach a place of compromise, but we'll never force people to do anything because then if, it, if, if that decision they made didn't go well, they can't put it on up. Like, it's, it's yours. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's like a mythology around, or not like mythology, but just like this like notorious like, you know, network notes of like, what, <laughs> do you have any of uh, the crazy ones you've heard of or given yourself? <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, so, you know, the majority of my career, I was on the other side of things, selling shows to networks and, and getting those notes. And one yeah. of the things when I interviewed for the job at True that really jumped out at me was both, uh, both my bosses saying at that time, like, listen, we don't want to give pages of notes. If it's, if, if you're about to give pages of notes, it needs to be a phone call. Because yeah. that means big picture something is missing. And, and that's got to get curbed well before you're in production. Um, and so we really don't try to give our partners a ton of notes. Um, we, we Again, we just kind of give them big picture like, hey, listen, this is what we want you to lean into. This is where we think the funny is. Um, you know, and there's little nitpicky nuance things here and there. But for the most part, we, we try not to do that because being on the other side... If you just get all these notes and all these notes, you, you, it just becomes demoralizing. And then you're not working hard because you're like, well, why don't you guys just make the show if you have all the answers? <laughs> and so you really want to wanna keep your partners and the people actually making the show um, motivated and then also accountable. You know what I mean? You want them to take ownership of this thing and have it be theirs and have, it be, have them be proud of what they're making and not not sort of resent the fact that now they're making something entirely different because the network has turned the show they bought into something totally else. So do you have any, like, uh, maybe a specific examples without naming names of, like, maybe the dumbest note you've ever heard? <laughs> yeah, I could tell if I, So, um, you know, I used to... And this is this was actually, like, a real-life, like, note in that, in that it was a conversation and not necessarily, like, emails or whatever going okay, back yeah. and forth. So, um... One of the jobs I had earlier on my career was uh, working for MTV, developing shows for them. And so a lot of times what would happen is, um, you know, they'd, they'd call me in and be like, hey, here are the five celebrities who have uh, signed up for spring break this year. We need a half hour show idea for each of them. So they'd be like, okay, here's Jimmy Fallon. He's doing this movie or Paris Hilton's going to come down or, you know, so it was usually project based, which kind of let you focus in on what you do. So. One year with Fallon, it was Fever Pitch, that like baseball movie he did with Drew Barrymore. Uh, so then you're like, okay, we can think of something like that. And uh, one year, Paris Hilton was going to be there, just being Paris Hilton. And so we came up with this like 
king of king or king and queen of spring break sort of idea something along those lines where it's going to be kind of a pageant popularity concert like very paris-esque where she could kind of judge like you're cool you're not whatever <laughs> and so we had prizes and then we had like what you'd call like booby prizes right of like okay like hey okay you know contestant one pick which prize you want behind door one or behind door two okay behind door one is a jet ski way to go awesome behind door two oh it's a jug of ocean right like wah wah whatever not saying this was the greatest idea but getting to the point of the notes <laughs> um so we come up with or i come up with this idea of like one of the you know silly prizes gag prizes would be that a jug of ocean you know and just like okay it's whatever we're on the beach so i I'm looking for a jug, and I'm in Mexico. I'm in Cancun, Mexico, right? And so it's not like I can go to Walmart or whatever. I, and so I find this, like, one-gallon glass jug of, like, table wine. You know, I'm like, oh, this jug is perfect. So I bring it back to our little production office, which is in a hotel. And the boss, like, the main woman who's overseeing everything was like, Brian, why is there a giant jug of wine? And I was like, oh, well, I'm going to dump out the wine, take the label off, and we're just going to use that glass jug and fill the ocean water. That's going to be the jug of ocean. Well, we can't have wine on set. No, I know what I'm going to do is I'm going to dump the wine out. I'm going to take the label off and then fill it with ocean water. It'll be a jug of ocean. Yeah, I just I just don't know, like, it's spring break. Like, I just don't know that we should be promoting the use of wine. And I literally was just like, what don't you understand? And so I was like, Give me two minutes. So I ran to my hotel room, dumped all the wine out down the bathtub drain, tore the sticker off, brought it back, put it down, and she's like, "Oh, now I get it." And it was just you like, like I literally had to show no wine and jug to get the idea of no wine and jug. Yeah, and, but but that's often like that's often. I mean, that's a, like a very literal and like physical, <laughs> but like often when you're getting notes, that's what you feel like. Okay, so let's say, uh, you know, a series goes to, goes a full order, is universally loved, gets renewed, has a long life. Like, what's the ultimate goal? Like, what's considered like a home run? Because I've heard that for scripted, it's like you, if you do like a hundred episodes, you get like syndication. Like, Yeah, it's, it's weird because I think it's like... Every show has different sort of goals and expectations long term. And so I think there are certain things that I think, you know, like um, like the British office is a great example. Like I think that show is really critically acclaimed. I think I, I personally really loved it. But it was, I really like that they were like, listen, after 16, we're done. Like, we don't have more. We're not going to stretch this thing thin. We're not going to, like, as the saying goes, jump the shark. It's like, we had a kind of a finite story we wanted to tell. And that's what it was, you know? And so, and, and I don't think they would look at that and be like, oh, we only had X amount of episodes. Maybe it wasn't a success. I think they would say it was a giant success. Whereas other shows, you know, like Wheel of Fortune probably get more love as it goes on because they've been around for so long and they've done tens of thousands of episodes at this point and so I think it just depends I mean I think for a format which you know game is great or, or talk formats or even like an SNL comedy format I think the longevity says a lot about the structure and like what the foundation was built but um, I think I think you know not every show's best version of itself lasts a long time I think certain shows do go on like I remember um there's a show on Fox, God, more than 10 years ago now, I think, called Prison Break. Oh, yeah, and, like, yeah. it was a really cool idea, and the first season was, like, great. And then you're like, 
It was like the map of the. Yeah, the guy was had on a the tattoo. Whole, yeah, the yeah, one guy yeah, wanted yeah. to like break out his younger brother, so he got the whole like, the, you know, he basically had the map of the prison like yeah. hidden in his like full body of tattoos, and it was like kind of clever, but. You could see that was probably a movie that they're like, oh, we can probably get more out of this if we make it a TV show. And it just kind of went on a little too long. And like then they were just like out of that prison, but then they're going to another prison. And then they're out of that prison. And so it's just like, okay, enough already. So it isn't necessarily about the number of episodes. I, I just think it's about your expectation and, and what you're trying to like ultimately prove and and if it's a story there's usually a finite end and and if it's a format then in that case yeah you hope it just keeps going and going yeah um so we've talked about like you know developing a bit but half of your job is like the finding and the hearing new ideas yes um so like just to get a sense of kind of like a day in your life of not necessarily a day but even like a year like how much time is split as a percentage between like finding new ideas versus developing existing ideas um i th- Mm. I think that you're probably spending a little bit more time finding yeah. um, just because the percentage of shows you find that are then worth developing are, is very small. I mean, one out of maybe every 20 pitches. And, and I mean, and we're getting pitches that are, you know, this isn't like, oh, my buddy's cousin's sending you. I mean, these are pretty well vetted, like respectable production companies all coming usually through pretty big agencies. Like how many um, official pitches do you hear like a week? As many as like six or seven, definitely at least one or two a week. Yeah. So I'd say like on average maybe three to four. So over a year it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a ton. It's, <laughs> it's a, a ton. ton. And, and and again, like, you know, what we're looking for is pretty specific to us. Yeah. And so a lot of times ideas that we'll pass on I'll see on the air other places. It's not like they're bad ideas, they're just for one reason or another not like exactly right for us yeah you mentioned that it's like these ideas are going to get filtered through like this true tv brand yeah so like what what would you say then is that brand again it's like it's a somewhat like an authentic like or a, or was a point of view or something yeah no it's it's all really like creator creator driven comedy with with a real sort of unique and uh and re- a unique and authentic point of view on an uh, on a relatable subject Right, so so it's yeah, creator driven. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but but that point of view is is everything, and and again, the overall subject matter is there's got to be a connection there. There's got to be something relatable there, so then you can kind of go off and be funny. But if if you don't share that foundation, then building off that foundation becomes really tricky because then you don't know what your baseline is, so you don't know there and where where the jokes are coming off of that. So you've got at least be dealing with a baseline that everyone kind of is like okay i get it this is like a whatever a a spoof off of a cooking show i know what those are like oh that's funny then because rather than going this way they're going that way but if you don't have that baseline knowledge you might just get kind of lost so like you even you're like referencing other shows to like sell an idea is that kind of still something that happens in pitches that like a normal convention of like it's like this yeah it's like that yeah and i mean and 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 the beautiful thing about a network is often we can reference our own shows yeah. to say, you know, I brought up Adam Ruins Everything earlier, and that's one that we bring up a lot is like, okay, this is a fun investigation, but think about the world. Think about visually what you're seeing, because we don't just want someone talking at us or doing interviews in a daily show style. We want things to be a little bit more dynamic and visually pleasing or, or, or catchy. Um, and so often... For us, anyway, you know, we're we're referencing our own shows, and then when you pitch shows, you'll often tap into points of reference to say, like, hey, 
listen, this is an adult version of Sesame Street. And people are like, okay, I get what that means. Or like, yeah. okay, this is this is sort of like our version of this known game show or whatever. And so you're always kind of throwing out those points of references, but usually with our production partners, we're, we're referring back to our own shows. So you're using this filter for the pitches. Um, like I saw the slogan for True TV was like, it's funny because it's true, whereas like TBS is like, we're comedy, so it's like, it's not just comedy, it's like a creator perspective would be more like what's unique to a show that would end up on True TV versus like TBS or something. Yeah, and, and, and we also, um, I think I think if you looked at like, you know, TBS is, is owned by the same, you know, we have the same part, uh, same mom and dad, which is now the phone company, AT&T. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we all work for the phone company these days. But, um, no, so, so, but even us, between us, Comedy Central, IFC, um, you know, there's, there's differences. You know, we, Comedy Central is a, a little bit more inside comedy. And, and they've got that uh, luxury of, you know, people come to them to see up and coming talent. We don't have that luxury as much because we're not a place that shows stand up and we're not like for comics, comics. Things on True TV are usually a little bit more broad. You know, like I don't know if. And True TV is relatively new, right? It's like only a few years old? Yeah, I mean, it's been around for a while. It started as Court TV. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> and, then it, and then it turned into True TV, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11 years ago. But in the beginning, it was <clears throat> of True TV even, it was a lot of. Um, like reality programming, like yeah, cops so like, and towing shows and things like that. I guess it's like much different than from what I like think of when I think of True TV now. As far as like I don't know, maybe like I I, I consume a lot of comedy, so like I, I think of all the comedy shows on True TV that right. are like yeah. And that's been the last like four plus years that we've been. Uh, okay, so, so that's and, more what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. and and I got there uh, after that switch had been made uh, into comedy because I yeah reality stuff I just. I didn't have much experience in and wasn't really looking to get any experience in it. Um, so if someone's pitching a show that has a political element to it, does that necessarily help or hurt its chances, do you think? So again, talking about the way we differentiate ourselves, like we've kind of made a conscious decision at True to avoid politics. Um, we feel like there's a lot of it. I mean, all the late night shows yeah. are talking about it. And because we don't do a lot of like day and date, meaning we don't do a lot of shows that, you know, shoot on a Friday and air that Friday. Like most of our shows are in the can, as we'd say, and air months after we make them. Like being political and being topical just is something we, we've avoided. And, and it also has something to do with like, because your social media feed is filled with both intentional and unintentional political jokes all day. You know, sometimes it's comedians making jokes and sometimes it's politicians acting like clowns. Um, we kind of have taken the stance of maybe people just want to get away from all of that. Because even a joke about Donald Trump is still more Donald Trump. You know, a joke about Elizabeth Warren is still more Elizabeth Warren. Like, let's just be a place where you can just get away from that because it's a little exhausting I think especially now you know there's just so much oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know the line's been drawn in the sand and you're either on this side or that side and it's like this isn't about sides you know we very much look at us our network as like a purple network you know we, we imagine there's some conservatives who watch us and some liberals but it isn't necessarily about that we don't you know you can imagine okay because like even Adam ruins everything isn't it's like it covers like topical content but not necessarily a political way yeah like, right yeah exactly like he'll he'll ruin 
um, you know, engagement rings. Yeah. <laughs> That's something that liberals and, and conservatives can agree on. Like, holy shit, yeah. this is a lot of money to spend on a ring. Or, um, you know, like I said, the standing desks. It's like, there are probably conservatives and liberals who swear up and down why the standing desk is saving their life and making them so much more healthier and whatever. And if he takes, you know, if he, if he takes the wind out of those sails... Yeah, there's not necessarily like a political message. Even even with the elections, Adam ruins the elections. It's more about the process and the way that um, electoral college is sort of an outdated system and the way that, um, you know, district lines are drawn. So it's not necessarily a this side's bad or this side's bad. It's more of like the whole system's crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and we should all be able to agree on that. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but again, like going back to that creator-driven, like... Adam was doing that, like that was his stand-up routine, that was probably him in the lunchroom in high school, like he's been that sort of annoying know-it-all his whole life. And so that's like a perfect example of like, someone could pitch, oh here's my version of that, but unless their host like lives and breathes <laughs> that sort of like point of view on life of like, no, I want to I wanna get to the bottom of this, like and that's what he brings, you know, and, that, and those are the shows for us that really work, where it's like, if you removed the impractical jokers and put four other random dudes in there, it wouldn't work. You know, if you if you removed Adam or removed Carbonaro, that's sort of how we identify something as really working for us. Is where it's like this is the person who could tell this story. So, do you get enough uh, or a, a decent amount of pitches that are like adapting existing like content or like adapting like other forms of media? Um, like, what do you mean? Like, I know in, like, I guess, like, in movies, it's like you adapt existing IP or whatever. Oh, yeah, like yeah, that. no, sure, for sure. I mean, podcasts are something we get a ton of. They're, t- they're tough, but, but we look at those where people come in like, hey, here's my podcast. I'm going to turn it into a TV show. <laughs> um, yeah, there's books. You know, we'll look at a book uh, that a comedian might write about dating, and then that will cause us to have a conversation of, like, oh, is there a way to do a comedic dating show that isn't necessarily, like, you know, the 90s style limited or blind date, but is more of a modern version that could still be funny. And so, yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. Articles that are written, um, you know, for me personally, one of the first shows I ever sold, um, I used to, a friend of mine used to work at Entertainment Weekly. So every time I was over at her apartment, I'd always like flip through the magazine and I recognized or realized they had this um, series they'd always do there called Five Rounds With, where they'd go out, to drinks with a, a band or a musical artist and you know it's basically each round uh, indicated like a new line of questioning and so I looked at that and I was like oh my god this could be a fun TV show you know take a band out have some drinks you hear some funny stories or yes. whatever and yeah that was one of the first shows I ever sold um, so I think it's yeah you never know I think if if there's a if, whether it's again whether it's a point of view or an angle or just a way to dissect something uh, yeah, those things can pop up in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, so you're not just like hearing endless amounts of pitches in your office, like you're actively, you know, seeking out new ideas and like, what are ways in that you do this? Is it like via live shows or is it like online videos? Is For sure, all that yeah, stuff? live shows are another one where, you know, thanks to like places like the UCB or Pit, uh, the Pit, um, you'll see like people are doing uh, like we had a show on True TV called Talk Show the Game Show, which for years was a live show in Los Angeles that this guy put on. Um, we've had a couple of others that we've looked at and tried, um, but there's so many really talented, smart people putting up these shows on their own, whether it's at the Brooklyn Bell House or whatever around here in New York, 
And those are a great resource to like go check them out and be like, oh my god, this is a pretty good format. These, this host or these two hosts are really funny or she's really funny or whatever. And then you try to see if then, again, you've got to build it out a little bit. Um, because the expectations of, you know, when, when you go to a live show, you're invested. You paid your 10 or $15. You're going to have a couple beers. Like, you're there to laugh. Yeah. Whereas, like, sometimes when you sit on the couch, you're not like, okay, it's time for me to laugh. You're just like, what's on? And so we've got to, like, we have a little bit harder of a task to, like, grab you and then get you to laugh. Whereas, you know, if you go oh, to a comedy show, you, you are making the commitment. You're not going there cynically, most likely, unless you're yeah. just an asshole. Then <laughs> good for you, but that's a weird way to live life. But usually you're kind of, like, in. You know what I mean? You've committed to going. You've committed to, like, leaving your home to, like, go to this thing you're probably in the mindset then of like, okay, this is going to be fun. So if, if there's a Brian out there that has a good idea for a show and like wants to pitch, you know, wants to figure out a way to like sell his show somewhere, like, but doesn't live in like LA or New York where people aren't necessarily act, seeing sure. live shows all the time. Is it something like, you know, that there's like the True TV's like uh, has open submissions that's for, for some of their initiatives at like the New York Television Festival. Is yeah, that like a good I, way to get like ideas to you necessarily? Yeah, the... the there are definitely those, like there's festivals and things like that. I, I would say that's a, while, while a possibility, a, a difficult path. I think, you know, even when I had my production company and we were just starting before we even had much of a reputation, your best bet is to, okay, let's say you've got show X idea, look and see out, like find out, say, okay, it's sort of like, I don't know, this is sort of like uh, Top Chef, whatever. We'll just throw that out as an example. See who the production company is who makes Top Chef. Call them and say, hey, listen, my name's Brian. I live in Tulsa, <laughs> Oklahoma. Uh, I have this idea. It's sort of similar. Because Brian from Tulsa, Oklahoma is going to have a really difficult job trying to sell me a show. Because even if the idea is great, how are you going to execute that idea? Do you have an LLC? Do you have production capabilities? Can you on the drop of a hat get you know a couple hundred thousand dollars to hire all the people necessary probably not and so often early on and, and listen production companies look for people with ideas all the time this happens all the time where it's like oh here's a guy has an idea we're shaping this into a television show a more pitchable real thing with an actual sort of business model of how to execute it behind it that's usually the best bet is, is to sort of look for someone or look for a company that's playing in that space. And chances are there'll be a handful of them. Reach out to all of them. Say, hey, here's my idea. And and don't get, don't get into the game if you can't deal with no, because no is going to happen all the time. Oh, yeah. 99.999% Yeah, <laughs> and, and also sometimes it's like years of no, and then for whatever reason, someone's like, okay, yes, you know? And, and I mean, I think... You know, Mad Men is an infamous one where the guy who created Mad Men came from The Sopranos, so obviously was working on a very well-respected, like, the hottest show in television, had this idea. Nobody wanted it, and that's why it ended up on AMC, which barely existed when they took that show, you know? And then, surely enough, after Mad Men launched, Pan Am's launching, and this is, like, then there were all these, like, everyone wanted that, like, 60s, like, smoking at work show, and, you know, none of them worked outside of Mad Men, but it's, like, you know, that guy just believed in the idea, got hit on the chin a couple times, and, and I'm sure, at the time, 
I mean, I don't know the financials of that, but I'm sure for his ego, it was a little bit like, wait, I'm going from working on like one of the coolest shows ever, on arguably one of the coolest networks ever, and now my next idea is the only people who want it is some network called AMC, who I think just runs classic movies. <laughs> you know, and up to that point, it's kind of what they're known for, but I put them on the map. So it's like, you gotta, if, if you believe in the idea, just believe in it because it might take uh, people, other people out there a minute to catch up. Yeah, so like, if, in terms of like best practices for like, if someone was to pitch you something, how much can you sense whether they like believe in an idea or just kind of like, here's an idea that I think could work? <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, you get all, you get all, all forms, but it doesn't, sometimes when they just throw out the idea, sort of like, what about this? You can still like it and it can yeah. still, you know what I mean? And, and that's often, we often make the joke about, it's usually the second idea that usually works. Like people are all, because you get into your own head and you've been sitting with this like thing and it's like your baby and you've been like nurturing it for months and you're like, God, this is perfect. <laughs> and other people might not think that. And, and it can be then, well, okay, here's this thing I've spent so much time on and you know created this wonderful deck and have all this tape on. Yeah, that didn't connect. Well, here's a one-liner. What do you think? And you could be like, "Holy God, that's perfect!" Like, let's think about that. So it's you just never know. Yeah. Do you find yourself getting like pitched to at like parties and social gatherings and that kind of thing? Is there like a is there an instance of like a weird time you've ever been pitched to where you just like? No, I mean, not really. Um, I would imagine in LA that might happen a little bit more. Yeah. Um, one, a lot of my friends kind of work in the world. So, like, the last thing we want to talk about when we leave is, like, work in that regard. Um, but, as people say, I do, it happens, whether it's friends or relatives or, oh, you know, here's my idea for a show. Can I tell you? Yeah. And my reaction to that is, like, only if I can give you honest feedback. Because, like, just, like, if you're asking me to do my job, I'm going to do my job. It seems like there's like an unlimited amount of money that Netflix has to spend on making shows, and does that make your job more challenging in any sure. like sort of tangible way? Uh, yes, for sure, um, because there are simply times where we get outbid by them, um, or they'll buy things to take it off the market. Um, I think the thing that you know it can't last forever. Like it's not a, currently not a profitable business. You know, it's very similar to the early days of YouTube where yeah they have everything and it's it's this big growing thing with all sorts of potential so therefore it gets more money invested in it whatever but again going back to the behavior thing think about at some point Netflix is going to have to make money so it's either going to be through advertising or through raising their subscription rates right and so you look at that at what point are you going to be like ugh this isn't that cool anymore. It costs like $35 a month. Where it's like how like movie pass. It's like, it used to be a cool experience. And now right. it's like... Eh. Or, or, or how, again, you're not used to seeing commercials during a Netflix show. And all of a sudden they start popping up. You're just like, ugh. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it is a little bit frustrating at times. But like, yeah, it's, it's fine. There's enough. There's a lot of content out there. Yeah. True TV has the lowest average commercial and promo time in all of television. And would that be just like a, a direct like adjustment to all the streaming options? Yeah, for sure. And, and uh, yeah, we launch, it's, we call it LCI, which is, uh, I think it stands for lower commercial interruptions. Um, but you actually find that the retention is much higher, which makes sense. Because 
If you're only seeing two commercials in a break, you're more likely to remember what those were. And they actually have the data to support that there's actually more action on that, where I think the study they did was with Taco Bell, where like they could literally trace people watching Taco Bell commercials that were in a lower commercial inventory that then there were actually people then went out and bought tacos because you remember it. And so then there's more value. You know what I mean? And it's just like, like it's, you know, if you look at a NASCAR, there's 9,000 ads. You're just like, whoa, I'm just, my head's spinning. But if there's just one ad, you'll remember it. You're like, oh, Dale Jr., Bud Light, got it. Or Miller Light, whatever, Budweiser. I don't know much about NASCAR. But you get the point. Like, yeah, the more yeah. crowded the neighborhood is, the less likely any house is to stand out. And I mean, I'm, yeah, it makes total sense <laughs> and, 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 and you know for us the advertisers have bought into that which is great yeah they don't want to be just drowned out either <laughs> yeah right it gives them a louder voice and, and it makes that and, and so the economics have worked out all right and then for us it just it it, it just feels a lot better watching those shows because the, the commercial breaks are so quick you're just yeah. like wow we're back already you're not like, oh, should I go to the bathroom and yeah. figure out something else to do? Yeah, exactly. Go flip <laughs> over to another. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. So, like, with all the endless amount of content now that's out there, do you have any, like, theories on, like, where things will end up? Like, will things become more and more just niche and niche and niche and impactful? Is this the pinnacle of Brian podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Um, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because it, it's, like, for everything I, I think I know, there's probably, like, four things I don't know. <laughs> And, but it, I, to me, it's all exciting because I, I, ultimately it, it, we're just getting into a more um, democratic process, I think, in like things surviving, right? Whereas 30 years ago, there was three networks, right? Yeah. And so there's only three outlets. And so if you didn't make those three, then your dream just died. Now there's so many places where you'll hear about shows oh my God, this show on FX is awesome. Oh my gosh, go watch Amazon for this. And like, people are open to that. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting time. I think um, it's currently a little bit akin to like the dot-com boom, where right now you've got all these like what we call OTTs, but like Netflix, all the apps, HBO Go, Verizon Go 90, the ESPN, like all these little apps that are basically like channels, right, on your phone. I think right now is a boom of that, just sort of like the dot-com boom. And then eventually there's just gonna be too many, and rather than everyone wanting their own website, they're gonna be like, oh, why don't we all just hang out on this website? You know what I mean? And so I think I think right now we're in, in a big boom, but eventually it's all gonna kind of condense and they'll probably end up being a handful of players. Because again, you just, as a, as a consumer, it does get a little overwhelming, you know? And, and there'll also be ways different ways that things are curated so whereas before you sort of depended on the network to serve up what you think would like okay I'm I'm into comedy I'm gonna turn on true TV I'm, in, I'm into comedy I'm gonna turn on Comedy Central now you'll have some sort of feed or whether it's through your social feeds and your friends or algorithms where it's like oh you're into comedy here's nine shows we think you'd probably like and, and whether that's an algorithm or whether that's like, if you think about like how Apple does radio where they actually have curators, they have humans, you could imagine someone like whatever, Jimmy Fallon would have his own, hey, here are Fallon's picks. Where you're like, oh, I like Fallon. Here's the 10 comedies he likes. I'll probably like those. Okay, well, I'm not going to end the True TV section now on a, on a theory question. I'm going <laughs> to end it on a gotcha question. If True TV is all about comedy... What's so funny about college basketball? 
Uh, the funny thing about college back basketball is the hypocrisy of the NCAA. No, uh, just kidding. Uh, no, so what that basically boils down to, and, and trust me, I was a college Did someone ba- pitch you college basketball? I was a college basketball fan well before a fan of most things. So that's how I first knew about True TV for sure was through March Madness. But that's an example. Um, and you see this with other networks too. Um, USA Network will do the same with the Olympics. It's the fact that Turner invests in college basketball, uh, which makes sense because TNT does basketball all the time. And so during March Madness, because they can, it used to be, you know, when I was in college, CBS had it and they would cover one game and they'd cut back between the other three games and you're like, God bless it, turn back on the Mizzou game or turn back to the Michigan State game and you'd just be sitting there waiting. Hopefully the feed would go back. Well, a cable company buys the rights and they're like, well, wait, we own four networks. Why don't we just take over that real estate? And so that's you know, where that comes from is just because TNT wanted the basketball tournament, but they were like, well, we have three sister networks that could actually support so we could actually show all the games in their entirety. Why not do that? <laughs> you know? At least True TV was like self-aware enough. Where like I remember seeing like some of those like promo ads during it, where it was like True TV Awareness Month. Where oh it was, yeah, like, it was just funny. It was just like well, that was a reaction because we yeah. got it. Because every year you hear the same thing like, what the hell? What's True TV? Because you know yeah. those are people who know ESPN, they know Fox Sports, yeah. they don't necessarily know about us. And and so initially it was a little tongue in cheek, like haha, we get it. But now we're like, okay, we've been around enough. Like that joke's sort of over. We still obviously use that influx of people to our advantage to promote our new shows and to let them know a little bit about us. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of, you know, the uncle that comes to visit and, uh, listen, as a college basketball fan, I'm glad he does. It's pretty awesome. I don't feel as guilty watching that during the office hours and just watching the network. Oh yeah. You don't need to use the boss button. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's right. That's right. (laughs) The boss button is actually reversed for us. You want to be seen watching the games. Um, But yeah, it's it, yeah. It, trust me, I think about it all the time because as a sports fan, um, you know, and we we talk about like, is there a way to bring sort of a sports comedy show to life during that time when we've got all these sports fans? And so that's something, you know, we actually have a show now that I'm in development on that would kind of play in that space. But it's by no means like a priority for us. But I think it's something we're open to because we recognize, you know, for a month a year, every year we've got a you know millions of fans coming who are checking us out for the first and only time. College basketball will stay on True TV for a while? For the near future that you know of? I think, yeah, I'm not sure exactly, but usually those deals are like, you know, 10-year deals for like gajillions of dollars. AT&T is doing something about it right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and whether or not, you know, I'm sure down the road as as more and more people are are mobily streaming things that, that you know, maybe True TV doesn't have to carry the games because it's all through the app, and then you get to pick which games. I, you know, but but for the time being, as long as those, you know, as long as cable networks are still making money, which they they are, um, we'll we'll carry those games because Turner invested a ton of money to carry them. Okay, so I'm gonna jump now. We're gonna get into the Brian questions, but I'm gonna ask you just three questions about your journey to True TV. Sure. Only three because, based on. Your journey, it looks like you've had such a very interesting uh, life up to this point as well, so I could talk to you for like way too long. <laughs> but, uh, you know, starting with, I saw that you uh, were raised in suburban Detroit, but then you first got into the entertainment business as a member of the Detroit Children's Circus, spending your summers flying through the air as a deaf-defying acrobat and also trained the show's mules. Right. 
So how did you end up in the circus? Yeah, right, right, right. So, um, so I uh, will flash forward away from from my supposed time in the circus to I, I was working at TRL um, in the late '90s, early 2000s when that show was launching, and uh, you know, in the early years of it rather. And um, we were always doing research on the online about celebrities, and couple times we'd get burnt where you know you ask usher oh i saw that you know in you know when you're in fifth grade that you you know won a tap dance competition like that's not true and, and we'd get burned on air a couple times where we would just find <laughs> these facts on the internet and people would come and be like oh, we found that on imdb and so as an exercise i wrote a fictitious bio for myself on imdb <laughs> that still exists today that references me being an acrobat uh, me being in a circus, me raising mules. Um, I was raised in suburban Detroit, but I was never in a circus or had anything to do with acrobatics uh, or mule. I mean, I like mules. I played donkey basketball before. It was a great time. Um, but yeah, and so it, partially accurate. You were raised in suburban. Yeah, Detroit. yeah, partially <laughs> accurate. But it was sort of like an exercise just to show people like you can't trust IMDb in that regard. Um, but I like the fact that it still this exists like a, and it's up Adam there. Adam ruins everything episode. You're just debunking yeah, IMDb right. right now. Yeah, right. That's right. Um, <laughs> and, and who knows? Maybe now the IMD police will show up at my door and you know slap me on the wrist and say, how dare you? But when I did that profile, 2001 or two or whatever, when I did it, um, it made me laugh and the fact that it still exists. But it's, it's weird. You hear, like, I have a friend who has a TV show out now who's getting a ton of press. And every time they reference her age, I'm like, that is not, she's five years older than that. And like, surely enough, if you go on Wikipedia, it says she was born in like 1986. And I was like, that isn't true because I met this woman after she was a couple years out of college in 2005. Like, and she wasn't like a, you know, wasn't Doogie Hauser. She was like a normal person. So, you know, the internet is full of just little. Well, lies and myths. I will not trust IMDb now for future Brian's. You're the first I'm Brian just, that's I'm just used IMDb. You know. I'm just letting you. You might want to have a cross reference. Yeah. Or, okay. Know. Well, so is my next question. I don't even know if this is based on factual <laughs> information. Sure. Did you uh, write a public television access program called Lollapalooza '94? That's true. That's true. Okay. So then my question is: so it said you in '94 you wrote, produced, and hosted this critically acclaimed public access television show. And that's right, 94 was, that was right when, like, uh, Co- right after Cobain died and, like, had to pull out of that tour. Correct. How did that affect your show? So, right, and I, it had all the effect. So, basically what happened was, yeah, 94 was the year I graduated high school. And, uh, you know, I was a giant music fan, huge music fan. And my favorite band uh, was Beastie Boys. And I believe it was after Cobain passed away that the Beastie Boys got added to the lineup because I think it was going to be Smashing Pumpkins in Nirvana. And, and it could be wrong. I, I, whatever. It might have been Nirvana and Beastie Boys, but regardless. So my goal, I found the Be- you know, Beastie Boys were my favorite band. I knew they were coming to town for Lollapalooza. Where the, the venue was, where they were going to play is literally like five minutes from my house. And I was like, I've got to meet the Beastie Boys. Oh, because this is back when Lollapalooza was on was tour, travel. not yeah, just travel, in Chicago. Right. So, so, right, at this point, they were going to do three days in Michigan at this uh, theater called Pine Ob, which, again, is, like, right down the street from where I grew up. And so I was like, I've got to meet the Beastie Boys. I've got to meet the Beastie Boys. And I'm, like, thinking, like, okay, how am I going to do this? And what came to mind was 
maybe if I had a public access show, they'd want to be on my public access show. So I kind of, I don't know, was like, all right, great, I'm going to have a public access show. And so I call Lollapalooza and, you know, like through information, and again, this is before the internet, so I'm like dialing information and I don't even know where I ended up, like where the Lollapalooza office were. But I called him, I was like, hey, listen, my name's Brian, I'm a high school student, I have a public access show, which at that point I didn't, uh, and I want to do one on Lollapalooza. And they're like, all right, well, here's, you know, you got to send in a written request, blah, 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 blah. So I do that. And, uh, and they're like, all right, well, you know, and this is going back and forth because, again, it's like snail mail and phone calls of like over a couple months. They're like, well, listen, a couple bands said they'll do your show. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, because Lollapalooza, there's oh, 30 yeah, yeah, bands. Yeah, yeah, and, you yeah, know, yeah, some yeah. of those bands were like, wait, someone wants to interview us? And I was like, I'll interview anyone. I didn't care. Yeah. Um, and so I look and I was like, where are the Beastie Boys? And they're like, well, they've got their own publicist. And I was like, well what's his name? Like, how do I call him? Because I got to get the Beastie Boys on my show. And so called this guy uh, who's still their publicist, this guy, Steve Martin. And I called him up and I was like, listen, my name's Brian. I want to interview the Beastie Boys for your show. I'm a high school kid. And, you know, I'm going to do a show at Lollapalooza. Can the Beastie Boys do on it? And they're like, and he was like, well, do you have any video of anything you've done? And I'd had like a couple like video projects in high school or whatever. I'm like, Sure. You show those. <laughs> so I send off this VHS tape to New York City, and I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. So flash forward a couple months, never really hear anything about Beastie Boys, but I've got passes to Lollapalooza. I've got Tribe Called Quest, some band that I'd never heard of at that time called The Verve, who kind of became a band. Oh, Flaming shit, Lips, yeah. didn't know who they were at the time. Flaming Lips were going to do it. Um, Smashing Pumpkins were going to allow me to shoot one of their songs. I couldn't interview them. But so, so I had like some legit people. I was like, this is yeah. kind of awesome that I just pulled this out of thin air. And so I was interviewing bands, and I, and I was a huge Tribe Called Quest fan. And two of the three guys did the interview. And after the interview, I was like, oh, I'd love to like, I was getting like autographs on like a, the 8 by 10 like press photos or whatever that came in my little packet. And I was like, which again, so unprofessional, but as a high school kid, I was like, this is cool. I'm just going to get all their autographs. This is, you know, yeah. fun. I feel like it's already mission accomplished at this point. Yeah. Oh, big, <laughs> big time, big time. It's like gone way better than I thought. And so I go backstage with the Tribe Called Quest guys because we're going to find Q-Tip, who didn't do the interview, was going to like sign my whatever picture. And I get back there and I see Mike D at Beastie Boys. And I'm like three feet from him and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. Oh my. Like total fanboy, like freaking out a little bit. And I go up to him like, hi, Mike, my name's Brian. I, I called your publicist about being, uh, you, uh, maybe, or you guys being on my public access. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you're the kid. We're going to do it. And I was like, what? what? He's like, no, no, we know. We, we know. We want to do your interview. And so I ran back, got my friends, and was like, come on, because it was just two buddies. Like, I didn't have a cameraman. It was like my friend Danny and my other buddy. One carried the tripod and one hit record on the camera. And uh, so, yeah, I got to interview Beastie Boys and... After that, I was like, I should keep doing this TV thing because it's fun. Yeah, that's that's insane. Okay, so I'm gonna break my three question thing, but because like then is that that's basically how you got started doing like continuing TV. to write like well you went into TRL it sounds like yeah and so then, what happened and then you was, kept doing like Bonnaroo videos yeah and, so what happened was when I was I went to Mizzou for college 
And then there was a music theater. And again, I went to Mizzou, didn't know anybody. Like everybody at that school, it seems like, went to one of four high schools in oh, St. Yeah, Louis. St. Louis or Kansas City. Yeah, right. Yes. They're all like yeah. <laughs> 99% of the kids seem like they're from those two places, right? Yeah. So I was a little bit of an outsider in that regard. I uh, didn't really want to join a fraternity. But again, really big music fan. And uh, the venue there, the Blue Note, the Blue Note yeah. amazing guests. Oh, yeah, it's a great space. Yeah, and so I would just hang out backstage at the Blue Note. And bands would come off from sound checking, and I'd be like, hey, do you want to be on my little campus TV show? And they're in Columbia, Missouri. You know, it's not like they're in New York or L.A. They've got yeah. nothing to do for, like, five hours. Yeah. So they're like, sure. And so, <laughs> I mean, everyone in that from, like, you know, Ben Harper, Run DMC, Dave Matthews, like, all these bands that at that point were sort of playing that level of theater um, came and, you know, were, were, did the show. And so then, yeah, after I got out of college and I wanted to move to New York, I wanted to go to MTV, like, I had some pretty good relationships in the music world just because I'd been doing this, like, earnestly and, like, very, like, grassroots, which yeah. people in the music world loved, um, for a couple years. And so I had some good relationships with publicists and labels because they'd be like, no, this kid's been doing this for a while. Yeah. And you had like your major, made your own internships kind of Kind of, yeah, 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 kind <laughs> of. And, and so then... Um, then, yeah, as, as, and that sort of led to, um, you know, I worked on a couple of the early Bonnaroo films through some of those connections, just producing those. And then um, one of the first pilots that I shot with my production company, uh, we shot at Austin City Limits in 2004 and got along with the, the company that puts on ACL really well. And they liked a lot of the access we got. And they're like, oh, wow, these guys are getting some pretty good interviews and they're good, you know, shooting some cool stuff. So then from there, they kept hiring us every year to come back to Austin City Limits, and then also, then they ended up buying Lollapalooza. And they're like, why don't you guys just come? You know, I think I interviewed the bands backstage at both of those festivals for like five or six years. Um, just because, again, relationships and, you know, it was just fun. Yeah, it's, it's funny because you're like, you're doing like these like, you know, all, peak alt-rock, like, festival, Lollapalooza 94, going to, like, more, like, uh, you know, other alternative, like, bands as well, and, like, Bonnaroo and mm-hmm. that stuff, but then you're also, like, in the epicenter of, like, pop music at TRL at the yeah. same time Yeah, I mean, almost. that was the job, you know, and that was the thing. It was, like, at MTV at that time, you know, a lot of the jobs at MTV were very seasonal. Like, okay, you could do Spanky New Music Week, which is, like, an eight-week job, and then... You could work on New Year's Eve, which is an eight-week job, or Spring Break, which is a six-week job. So most of the people who worked at MTV in the, the 90s, early 2000s, were just sort of like shift from like one little pod to the next. Okay, you're doing Beach House, and then you're doing... But TRL was one of the few where it was like a little more steady. And like as a kid who wants a job and needs to pay your rent, like yeah. steady was good. And so, um, yeah, I was just like, okay, this is fun. Like I didn't know much about TRL uh, when I interviewed there, I remember like, those my, years are when it like kind of blew up, right? Yeah, and so I think when I came on, I was like the sixth person on the staff, and then within two years, we were like twenty some. So yeah, I was there. I got there right before it just like absolutely like blew up, um, and it was. So did you meet? Uh, did you meet? This is the third question. Did you meet Brian Latrell from the Backstreet Boys, and what I was did. he like? I did. Was um, he a good Brian, or was he... Uh... No, they, they, you know, um, it was interesting because as time went on with those groups, especially Backstreet, NSYNC, Britney, J-Lo, Christina, 
think Fred Durst, uh, Blank Winnie Two, those bands, like, it, we kind of became a safe haven after a while. Because in the beginning, we're probably the only people that like messed with Backstreet, right? And then they blew up, and then they're on the Today Show, and they're going here and going there, and like TRL was a little bit of like, okay, we know you guys, yeah, a little bit. And so it was this weird like, it would go through waves. In the beginning, there was a little bit of like, you know, normal. Okay, I'm the celebrity, you're the producer. But like as time went on with some of those groups, especially the people who would come through a lot, Diddy was another one, Jay Z, where like you'd actually like you could run into them in the airport and they'd be like, hey, how are? Like you just saw them so much, and and there was like a trust there. Like you're yeah. the press, but like you're press that we can manipulate, <laughs> that our label kind of owns or whatever it was. <laughs> but uh, but no, it was so. It, it, like over time, you know, those relationships just sort of developed and, and TRL did become sort of a safe place for some of those people, which is sort of an interesting thought, but it, but it, yeah, it kind of was. Um, okay, let's just jump into the Brian questions. Uh, first Brian question, um, do you know why your parents named you Brian? Yeah, so for me it was an easy one. Um, Brian was my mother's maiden name, so that's, that's where it came from. Uh, that's super easy. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> and so you're not. Uh, do you have any Irish ancestry at all? Yeah. Like, is her yeah. her maiden yeah. name is Brian? Then? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and and my unfortunately my mom's dad died when my mom was pretty young, um, so she didn't have as close of a relationship with like her Brian side of the family because yeah. of that. Um, but she has. Uh, my mom has a couple brothers, so I've got all sorts of Brian cousins and uh yeah wild. yeah 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 it's 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 and they're uh, all first name brian or all all last all name last Brian's. name brian yeah, so yeah. The, okay interesting so why this is now the question we're going to reveal which you, i don't think you can tell by his voice that he's a y brian yeah that's and why do you know why you spell your name with a do they know do you know why they spelt it with a y versus an i uh as a last name i don't know but i've never seen it with as an i with a last name have you no no. <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't know when when that that decision was made that all last name Bryans had to get Y, but that's sort of what pushed mine being a Y because it came from her last name. Yeah. But so it's a good story. I mean, I like oh, yeah. I, it's it, you know because as you know, people. Okay, I, why, why, you know, why are you a I? Why are you a Y? No, you have an actual like direct like reason. Yeah, there's there's and, it, and a. And a posse of Brian's out yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, if someone's got a problem with the Y, well, I got some. He's got some strength in numbers. Yeah, so, uh, and they're like farm-fed Indiana kids too. <laughs> like you don't want to mess with them. You know what I'm saying? These are these are some well-fed Brian's that are out there. What uh, what about your siblings' names? Where does Brian fit in? Or do you have siblings? I do. I have a, si- <laughs> and this is the interesting thing, that like I've never gotten a straight answer from my mom on. I actually have an older brother. So I have an older brother and an older sister. The sister, I can understand why my mom wasn't like, you know, I've always wanted to give someone my maiden name as a first name. Jill. They gave her Jill. That makes sense. She's a female. Uh, but yeah. my, I have a brother who's older whose name is Chris. I don't know. I don't, that's not a family name by any means. So, yeah. uh, so I don't know. Maybe she was hesitant. Maybe she was a little reluctant to try her last name at first, but then it took a little while and maybe a third kid for her to like breach the subject with my dad yeah. and like, so about my last name, could it be a first name? Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's... Um, Didn't want to roll the dice first time. Yeah, I guess not. I guess not, but like, yeah. Right, here's a wild card coming along. Yeah, right, basically. <laughs> so so I don't know why I got it and he didn't. What about how, what have you named? What are your name, naming capabilities like? Have you named any uh, pets, uh, well, dogs, I've named, cats, I, I, Yeah, so I, I actually have two children. 
uh, which I was at least 50% responsible for their names. Um, So my wife and I always joked if we had like a twin boy and girl, my wife's name is Monica, that we would name our kids twins Ryan and Veronica. Or I always thought it would be funny if I had a son to name him Brian with an I. I mean, I would never really do that, but it like makes me laugh to think about. I think it'd be funny too. Um, <laughs> right, but uh, but uh, my daughter is Bridget, which I guess is you know B R I if I was an I, but it's uh, but it, it's by no means connected to me. And then my other daughter's name is Catherine, which again nothing to do with anything. So so two part question: Dead or alive? One other Brian to meet? Who would it be? And favorite Brian of all time? Uh huh. Um, so meet and favorite. Sure. Um, Meat. Well, let me let me go favorite first, and this is a little bit of a cheat. But um, so when I was a kid, I collected baseball cards, and uh, and I wanted to have a favorite player, and I didn't want that favorite player to be on the Tigers, just because I grew up in Detroit, and all my other friends had favorite players who were Tigers. So I really wanted to have like some other guy, some other team player be my favorite player. And I love the number three. So I remember getting all my baseball cards together and getting all the number threes from the various teams and looking at the back of the baseball cards like, oh, see if there's anything that clicks. And number three from the Braves in the 80s was a guy named Dale Murphy. And I flipped over his baseball card and his middle name was Brian. And like, (laughs) In 1982, I'm six years old, I had been to Disney World, I'd been to all sorts of like state fairs and things, there was never Brian with a Y anything. It was always Brian <laughs> with an I license plate, Brian with an I sticker, Brian with an I pencil. So the fact that I flipped over this baseball card of a guy who was like in the running to be my favorite player, and he had his last name, was or his Brian was spelled with a Y, I was just like, that's my guy, and to this day... <laughs> Dale Murphy is my man. Uh, I love it. We're getting some like unique Y Brian takes. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah. So, and, and that's a middle name Brian. But as far as like favorite Brian, um, man, that is a tough one. Oh, Brian Doyle Murray. It would be my probably. Just I mean, I'm a huge I'm a huge Caddyshack fan. Uh, yeah. So Brian. Groundhog's Day. Yeah, yeah. Right. Brian Doyle Murray is my choice because then chances are you're at least having one meal a year with Bill Murray. So uh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'd go I'd go Brian Doyle uh, Brian Doyle Murray as the one I'd want to meet, and then my favorite Brian of all time is is Dale Brian Murphy, baseball player. Nice, nice, solid, uh, unique choices. Actually, I don't know if we've gotten either of those choices before. Definitely not the baseball. <laughs> <laughs> it's a deep cut. Okay, so here's a trivia question. Um, which Y Brian? is a fictional Canadian rapper appearing in a music video on a Comedy Central show. And I can give you a hint. We'll let that sink in for a second. A, f- a Y. Brian, who's a fictional Canadian rapper appearing in a music video on a Comedy Central show. I have no clue. I mean, hint- Snow? No. <laughs> hint, it's, it was the Kroll show. Oh, yeah. I didn't ever watch the Kroll show. Brian Lacroix and his hit, oh. his hit single, because he's Canadian, is Ottawa Go to Bed, Ottawa. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll play you the video afterwards. That's amazing. I actually hadn't heard of this one before. <laughs> I, like, I looked up why Brian trivia. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a harder question. Uh, if you had to choose a first name other than Brian, what would it be? Larry. 
Larry, oh, I was pretty quick. What? Yeah. Uh, so you've had that in your back pocket then for like you've always wanted to be a Larry? A, no, I I, I just <laughs> think it's a really fun name to say. I mean, yeah, Larry. Larry. I don't know. I yeah. just have such associations with uh, Larry David. Anytime I hear Larry right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Larry. 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 That's pretty solid. Okay. So overall, would you say being a Brian has been a plus or a minus in your life? Uh, yeah, plus for sure. Yeah, there's only one right answer. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm also like, I don't know, I think... Unless you have a particularly like memorable instance of your name being misspelled as brain, even though you're a Y, Brian, you've been scarred yeah, forever. Yeah, no, I mean, that would, yeah, that stuff would happen, but like, no, for the most part, um, it's good. I, I like the fact that my name has a story, you know what I mean? I think that... Oh, yeah, yeah, most people don't have that, like, yeah, reason. Some, yeah, there's there's at least something concrete, so, and, and, you know, it's tied to the family and tied to, you know, carrying on those traditions, so I think that's pretty cool. Cool. Um, again, as a huge Beastie Boy fan, they have a line where they, they say, "My name is not a Hulihi, nor is it Brian," as if like it's an it's it's not cool to have your name Brian. And I was like, mm, "I'll own that, and I'll just be the cool Brian." I don't know, but like I, I, that was sort of a diss on Brian. Oh, I haven't heard that reference. Yeah, actually. Wow. it's on Paul's boutique. Um, nor is it Brian, and it's like Brian is a very like for the most part just sort of like white nerdy dude name um but i own it like i am white i'm probably a little nerdy and it's all good i'm 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 comfortable (laughs) i'm comfortable with all of it so looking back at all the brians you've met in your life uh Mm -hmm. i or why do you think there's any been any shared uh common characteristics personality traits not really. I had a I had a soccer team once. I'm still good friends with my like one of my childhood Bryans, and we joke we had a soccer team once that maybe had 13 kids, and six of us were Bryans. Oh god, that would be insane. And and I mean, I, yeah, Brian Skoke, Brian Litchfield, Brian Hamilton, Brian Zerla, Brian Kibbe, Brian Terry. Those were the six. <laughs> it's probably like 1988 or something like that. But yeah, those were the six Bryans. And and just thinking about those six, I mean every kind of person and personality from the kid who got a perfect SAT score in math to the kid who was probably smoking cigarettes in the third grade. Like, it ran the gamut of all those kids, uh, for sure. Well, you beat my Brian grouping. I, 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 my most grouping was, like, it personally was, like, five Brian's on at work on a project at once. That's... <laughs> That's pretty impressive. I mean, we were again. That was confusing because we all just had like emails getting like oh, mis- yeah, mis-sent to right, each other, and, right. and all of that. But six on a soccer team. That's yeah, wild. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. So we all had <laughs> right, and then you mostly at that point you kind of go by last names. But yeah, there were, there were six of us. <laughs> so let's uh, let's just uh, you know end it with any message you'd like to say to all the Bryans out there. Yeah. Listen. Um, that one little letter, the I or the Y, is 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 just a speck. That that shouldn't be a defining thing. There are plenty of good I Brians out there. Plenty of good Y Brians. Um, you know, I, I I'm a man of peace. I think we should squash all the animosity and sort of the the side taking between the two. And uh, there's there's room enough in this world for both Brians. And so. Uh, yeah, don't, don't feel like just because you're one, you have to hate the other. I know that's the way we were raised, we were conditioned. Um, I think, you know, we should consider this, you being an I, me being a Y, even a, maybe the initial olive branch to, like, stop stop the nonsense between the two sides. Yeah, we're, we're, we're forging an alliance here, because phonetically, we're all Brian. That's, that's it. That's here, it. I'll, I'll even offer you a, a gesture of peace. Oh, my God. <laughs>
here's a bag if you didn't bring them. But uh, yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the the podcast. Thanks man. for having me. <laughs> this is great. He gave me a Brian beer. 